Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is healing after a loved one's suicide, and our guest is Dr. Bill Ritter. Dr. Ritter's first son, Bill Jr., died from suicide at the age of 27. An attorney, Bill Jr. was diagnosed with ADD, Adult Attention Deficit Disorder, and died at his own hand in 1994, only four months after diagnosis. His father, a now-retired Methodist minister, wrote the book, Take the Dimness of My Soul Away, Healing After a Loved One's Suicide, which has received national recognition for its thoughtful and personal look into a very difficult subject. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you very much, Gloria and Heidi. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to meet both of you at the Compassionate Friends uh, International Conference in Dearborn a few weeks ago. Yeah, Bill was uh, one of the main speakers, and it it was really caught our attention. We thought, oh, this is somebody we've got to have on the show. He gave a very, very powerful keynote address, um, and we appreciated that. Yes, it was it was fantastic. So getting into it, um, could you talk a little bit about Bill Jr. for us? Sure, I could. Bill Jr. was uh, uh, our first son. We uh, have, uh, he was our only son. We have a daughter, Julie, seven years his uh, junior. Bill was uh, 27. He was uh, an attorney. He was a graduate of Michigan State University and University of Detroit Law School. Uh, he was in the upper tier of his uh, law school class. He was selected for moot court. He was a law clerk for an automobile uh, company here in uh, the Michigan area, and uh, but he needed litigation experience. He went to uh, a small firm, and uh, they immediately put him uh, in the research uh, department, uh, and he spent every day in the library. Uh, he'd always had some difficulty with uh, uh, attention uh, relative to reading and the like, even though he'd been an honor student all the way through. He was in absolutely the worst kind of place in terms of his problem. Uh, he ended up realizing that he was uh, falling short of uh, production as they uh, uh, required it and uh, went to see a counselor. Uh, diagnosis came, uh, ADD, and uh, Ritalin was prescribed, and he went to his uh, uh, senior managing partner and said, uh, uh, I realize I have not been producing at the level you hoped I would produce, and uh, I know why, and uh, this is uh, what I've done. These are the steps I've taken. Please stay with me a little longer, and uh, I think you'll see the benefits. Uh, he was fired within the week. Mm. Um, within four months, he was dead of his own hand. Mm. Very harsh, harsh. It is, and he was so accomplished. I'm, and you know, I know how hard it is to make moot court, and law is a difficult. Yeah, Heidi Sussman's a lawyer, so she, he, he is. <laughs> she went through law school with him, so yeah, we I all did. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate all that. I mean, it's amazing how well, well he passed he the bar the uh, the first time, and not everybody yeah. does that. Absolutely not. Uh, uh, his uh, the place where he did his clerking, the uh, large automobile corporation couldn't believe that any of this had happened, and uh, nor could a lot of us. That's incredible. Um, how did he take his life? A gunshot. He pardoned? A gunshot. 
a gunshot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is which is com- more common for men. More common for men, uh, females. I'm told, uh, with what research I've done, tend to use uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, pills, the like. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, men are more t- uh, apt to choose gunshot. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you, as a minister, and I'm a, I'm a therapist, so when my son died, I was a therapist at the time, and one of the things that I found is I actually asked a friend of mine whose brother had died, or a, a fairly one therapist, how does the therapist grieve? And he said, long, hard, and endlessly like everyone else. But, you know, you're used to supporting other people, and it's difficult. Who's there for you? Did you feel any of those feelings? Well, Sure, but uh, but I had a tremendous number of people who were there for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I served a large church at the time, 3,200 members, and uh, uh, it seemed as if uh, every one of them found a way to reach out in some way, shape, or form, uh, all of them beginning by saying, uh, we don't know what to say. Uh, but then again, I didn't know what to say either. And, and just by their presence, their interest, their involvement, they said it eloquently. Uh, clergy colleagues, um, ironically, uh, in addition to, uh, to saying things, sent written materials. Uh, from my clergy colleagues, I got all kinds of books, which, uh, which weren't terribly helpful at the time. I appreciated the fact that somebody sent them. Right. But um, I wasn't ready to to read a book at the time. Right. You know, I had a lot of, I was working in a psychiatric setting at the time, and people wanted to pull me into my office, their offices and interview me endlessly to see how I was doing. And it was so early, I you know, it was difficult. I don't think anybody realizes how numb you are. You're in yeah. a state of absolute shock. And uh, putting a foot on the floor and, and then putting the second foot on the floor and, and moving through an hour, let alone a day, in those first days and weeks is really difficult. Yeah, I yeah. remember in the first days and weeks, I didn't want to look at any pictures of Scott because it made it too real, and it, it, I was already sad enough. I it was, it was painful to even look at photographs. Mm-hmm. So you're just in such shock. Yeah, I think you're right, Bill. People just don't realize around you they want to be helpful. Now, I found uh, I was uh, a Christian, raised Christian, but I found that the theology was not as helpful to me early on as the people were. Well, I, I think the theology came through the people. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Christian well, myself, uh, I believe in an incarnational theology, and the faith is manifested through persons and, and the way people care, the way uh-huh. they respond. And, and, and that was just phenomenal. One of the reasons that uh, uh, Chris and I didn't uh, avail ourselves uh, of one of these incredibly helpful uh, healing groups is because there were so many people around us who um, shared with us, who, who kind of surrounded with love, huh? told stories and, and uh, uh, took us out to dinner occasionally, did whatever would be helpful uh, to us and, and didn't press us to do things that wouldn't be helpful. Right. I wanted to say about your book, Take Away the Dimness of My Soul, this is a wonderful book. And the reason it is, particularly for bereaved people, is that it's really those sermons, right, Bill? A number of sermons. Five sermons. I never set out to write a book. In fact, uh, uh, thought that'd be the last thing in the world I would do. But uh, in, on five different occasions, I addressed the subject of suicide and addressed the subject of Bill's suicide. Uh, the first was, of course, when I climbed back into the pulpit for the first time three weeks 
I, I was totally amazed by that. I am you too. Could, That's unbelievable. Yeah, tell us about that. What is your experience, past experience with loss? Of course, you're trained as a minister to deal with a lot of losses, but did you have personal losses early? Well, I'd, I'd lost family members uh, just before I came to Birmingham. My sister, a uh, younger sister, had died. Uh, I'd buried other members of my family, but uh, I've also, over the course of 40 years of ministry, conducted or officiated at 1,600 mm. funerals or memorial services, oh some more difficult than others. I, I think the reason that uh, I came back as quickly as I did was uh, in an effort to uh, to prove that I could do it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, plowing through it uh, is an interesting image. I mean, plow is a work-related kind of image, and uh, that's always how I've dealt with stress is... Uh, uh, put my hand to the plow and, and press forward. So that's I actually conducted you, somebody else's funeral 10 days after. Yeah, I, I was amazed by that 10 days after. But I can identify with some of that because I was teaching at the University of Rochester and I supervised students on a locked setting and I also, uh, you know, where there were um, really very seriously mentally Ill, Ill people, schizophrenia and whatever. And I also uh, was the psychiatric nursing consultant to the whole surgical service, and I worked with many people who were in automobile accidents and died. And our, you know, our son was killed in an automobile accident 23 years ago at age 17. And I, two weeks later, I was back at work, and for the same reason that you were saying, I, I had to stay confident. I was falling apart inside, mm-hmm. and I was very confident. I think work for me was was therapy in one sense. Uh, work was uh, proving that I could carry on. Uh, I think everybody grieves differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter went back to uh, uh, Duke University and uh, for her junior year in September and proceeded to uh, get uh, all A's. Uh, his her junior year, her best academic year at the university of the three she'd been there. And uh, both my daughter and I had a harder time. As time went by, uh-huh. uh, my wife, uh, Chris, by contrast, kind of felt the emotions raw and early and often, and uh, she found that uh, uh, that she worked through a lot of this or, or went through a lot of this uh, faster. And, and when I began to tank in the second year, and, and people tell me that men are sometimes this way, that the second year is, is often harder than the first year, because you you put all this effort into proving that you can do it uh-huh. and uh, that you can keep going. Yeah, and not carry on think, and, Yeah, I think if people, yeah, if people's style is that, I think the second yeah. year is very very difficult. Heidi, tell them what you did. You went on outward bound, and that was quite. Yeah, I went on an outward bound program three months after Scott died because I was in such a bad state, and I just needed to go to you know kind of reexamine my life and figure out what am I doing here, what is my purpose. What is the meaning in my life now that my brother's gone? You know, kind of reexamining your life. Um, I was wondering about your daughter. You mentioned Julie. And as a brief sibling, I just wondered what kind of support she received at school from friends because she wasn't at home and I wasn't either at that time. When Bill died, uh, we immediately got on a plane uh, that same evening, flew to Durham, uh, so that she would hear it from us that there'd be no possible way that she would get this news without us present. Mm -hmm. Uh, We flew back with her uh, within 24 hours and then went through all of the the service preparation and the service itself. 
We also... Uh, Let, let's stop for a second. That must have been the hardest thing to go in and tell her. Oh, yeah. I mean, See, she had finished been... her semester. She had gone, as does seemingly every other Duke student, to Myrtle Beach mm-hmm. to hang out. <laughs> and so, first of all, we had to track her through a friend, and then uh, he had to drive her all the way back to Durham under some other excuse about getting back early and without telling her we were then waiting to tell her and then we went from there we also flew a pair of her friends back from duke to be with her through that process and through the service that's uh, a good idea could you, could you just uh, say a little bit about suicide about this situation with her telling her and and what went through your mind for our folks out there who have had uh, children who have taken their own lives. Well, she knew that that the, the past two or three months with Bill had been troubled, and that that he was uh, under a great degree of stress and pain over his uh, dismissal from the law firm. And um, as with somebody with ADD, one day he uh, would be intensely focused on the future and have a plan, and and uh, the next day he was in great despair. And the roller coaster of his emotions was very strong. Uh, I don't think she had any comprehension that this might be a possibility, although we did. And uh, so it did come as a tremendous shock to her. Uh, she felt uh, uh, angry and, and grieved, and, and all the emotions that that uh, everybody does. Uh, when uh, when we had the service. Um, and, uh, you know, let me say one more word. I hate to keep interrupting, but it's so key. When you say she felt angry, as everyone does, you know, I am I am very impressed that people are, you guys are in touch with that anger and mm-hmm. probably is part of what, what has been helpful because not everyone does get in touch with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it... Uh... And, and I identified with that because I was thinking, yeah, and I felt the same way. I felt like my life was not supposed to be like this. No, none of us did. You know, yeah. We, we certainly didn't expect uh, this for him, nor did we expect it for ourselves. Right. And uh, our lives have been changed uh, forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, you, you don't get your old self back. You get to get through it and beyond it, but you don't ever get over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not the same person ever again. And I think instinctively we knew this, and, and my guess is in a way she knew this. She didn't have friends when she got back to Duke who were supportive, but she didn't talk about it much. Mm-hmm. And so uh, her roommate called uh, my wife in October and, and said, uh, or my wife actually called the roommate and uh, said, how is Julie doing? And uh, the roommate said, she's, this is a real struggle. She's not telling anybody who doesn't already know, and we don't know how to, to talk to her. And so Chris flew down, and they took a couple of days and drove over to the coast to Wilmington and uh, that was a really healing turning point, uh, I think, for Julie in that process. And how long was that after the death? That would have been, uh, if Bill died in May, that would have been in October. Mm-hmm. And that must have been a little scary to hear that her roommate was concerned. Because it was scary to hear that her roommate was concerned. I know that in the past we've had guests on that have worried after a, chi- after a child has died by suicide that their other child or children would, do- would die by suicide. Was that a concern? Of yours at all, or or no? I know you're a very very strong person, Mm -hmm. and um, no, that wasn't a concern. I I can't 
recall. In fact, a lot of times the, ki- the surviving kids have had to say to their parents, we are not our sibling. Mm-hmm. We're completely different people. You don't have to have that concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. She didn't say that, and I don't think we needed to hear that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. We were simply worried about about how how we would get through, and she would get through, and and uh, how this would impact our lives. Uh, Bill, I wanted to ask you uh, while we're on the topic of your book, Heidi just mentioned it. How do people get a hold of it? Well, uh, it uh, in, in our area of the country, Borders carries it, and uh, I assume it's on their. Uh, Purchase list, so they'll order it for you. Amazon.com certainly uh, will do it. Um, Morehouse Publishing Company in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, is the publisher. Those and are the three it's, options. A, yeah, it's a lovely book, and let me say to you, it is only 82 pages long. Has five sermons that Bill's given uh, on suicide or on, on death, and it's it's really inspirational and it's. It's something that you can pick up and read because we were we were talking earlier on the show that it's hard to read uh, a lot of information. It's hard to concentrate. Yeah, the helpfulness of the book may be that that the first sermon is in there, uh, uh, and that's from three weeks afterward, and then there's a sermon uh, 14 months after that, uh, which was occasioned by the fact that I preached the funeral for the son of the minister who preached Bill's funeral. Uh, he too took his life, and so in in fourteen months uh, uh, there was a turnabout, and uh, I stood in the pulpit uh, uh, eulogizing uh, the son who took his life of the minister uh, who helped us so much and then the the third sermon was, uh, uh, a couple of years after that, and then uh, the last one was until nine years afterward uh, after I watched the film The Hours. Uh, which was up for an Academy Award. And uh, I try to deal in that sermon with the question, what happens if somebody walks into your office, closes the door, and tells you they're thinking of taking their life? Mm-hmm. What do you say? And so... And what, so what do you say? Well, at the end of the day, you, you listen empathetically, you, you, you share stories, uh, but finally, uh, you tell somebody, or I tell somebody, look, you know, I can't tell you that it's going to be better, uh, that it's going to be all right, that the world is going to turn uh, more favorably. I think it will, but I can't ask you to wear my glasses if you don't see it that way. What I can tell you uh, is not uh, what it feels like to leave the world, but what it feels like to be the one who is left. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I talked about what it felt like to be Bill's father. And what and, you say to them. And uh, at the end of that, I, I then say, hey, you know, if you can't figure out one reason to stay alive someday, stay alive for somebody else, just for a day. And if you can do that for one day as a gift to somebody else, then maybe you can do it for two days, and maybe you can do it for three days, and maybe you can do it for a week, um, because everybody or many people who, I shouldn't say that, many people who take their life uh, think that they're doing the world a favor, that everybody else will be better off. That they're a burden, of course. As a result, because they're a burden, and of course nobody will be better off. Mm-hmm. Everybody will be worse off, and not just for a day or two. People will, be, in some sense, be worse off for a long, long time. Yeah. Now, what and, do you tell them for our audience there who has had a child suicide? What did you feel like? 
what did I feel like? I, I told him I felt uh, uh, sad and empty and achy and lonely. I, I felt like it took uh, twice as long to do anything, and everything I did meant half as much. And I told them that, uh, above all else, grief feels laboriously like work, except you don't get any days off, perhaps for a long, long time. Um, I suppose after suicide, uh, it also means to feel some degree of guilt. Uh, what uh, what didn't I do that I should have? What uh, did I do that I shouldn't have? What signs did I miss? Uh, what warning symptoms did I overlook? And, and I suspect in some way when suicide is the issue, there's also a sense of, of shame and embarrassment. We were very upfront about what happened, but an awful lot of people tend to hide it and, and cover it up and uh, give other reasons for, for the death. Uh, uh, now, does that have something to do with the stigma? Did you feel any stigma uh, of suicide like people would want to blame you and say there must be some reason you must have done something? Or I think subconsciously everybody feels a little stigma. You know, we felt that we had been good parents. Uh, Bill said as much uh, just before he died to a friend. Uh, but uh, I think there's always some sense of stigma if if rape is the crime that is uh, is never uh, owned and admitted to by a good number of people because of the stigma involved in that, I, I think suicide is the the social problem that is never owned up to because there's there's some embarrassment and shame in that. But by gosh, I mean I was I was the minister of a 3,200 member church in a community where the church was the the center of the town. I mean. You have no idea what it, well, you, sure you do, but uh, what it's like to walk into a supermarket and have the, the cashier say to you, uh, you don't know me, but I'm just terribly sorry about what happened to you and your family. Yeah. But I'm, I'm impressed, Bill, even though you were such a public figure, you were very open about the way that your son died, and I think that's so important because being <coughs> open could prevent this from happening again, I feel. Well, it, it takes too much energy, psychic energy, to keep a secret. Ah, wonderful point. And, and plus, secrets aren't secrets anyway. Everyone knows. Right, everybody knows. And the more it's a secret, the more it gets around. Well, and, and, uh, and then everybody plays the game of deception. And, and if, if people are playing deception, then they can't be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They, don't, they definitely don't know what to say. I loved in your book where you talked about going to your lake place and going door to door. Yeah, I, the, uh, after I preached the first sermon, three weeks after Bill's death, uh, we thought we'd get away. It was a Memorial Day Sunday, and uh, uh, we would drive up to our lake place in northern Michigan, and uh, I thought everybody in the world knows about this. And then I realized, uh, 50 miles up I-75, that the one group of people who knew us, who were totally isolated from this piece of information, were our neighbors at the lake. And uh, I was right. They didn't know anything about it. And so I had to decide, well, for the sake of, of just getting away, were we going to keep it quiet? and uh, Or was I going to tell the people nearest uh, in terms of proximity to us? And I thought if I didn't tell people, then they'd find out. And then they would say, well, my gosh, she was here right after that. And right. He didn't say anything. And, and that would have 
screwed up our relationship for the next several years. Well, what a, uh, a wonderful uh, story that is an example of, of coming out in the community. I was saying to you that I would love to have you um, give something to our audience, maybe a scriptural reference or whatever a story uh, before we end the show. Well, let me put a story and a scriptural reference together. Sounds great. I think it was when I turned the corner and... Uh, uh, it was uh, into the second year of uh, the grief process. Uh, it was an evening I was sitting on my deck overlooking Grand Traverse Bay in northern Michigan. I was reading and thinking and just kind of chilling out looking at the water. When I suddenly found myself thinking about little kids, uh, mine, yours, anybody's little kids, and how all little kids like to test themselves by jumping from high places. Uh, there they are, they're standing on the edge of a sofa or a fence post or a stepladder, maybe even a garage roof. Uh, their knees are bent, their shoulders are hunched, they're poised, and they're ready to jump. Except they don't jump, or they don't jump until they first capture your eye and your ear. Uh, catch me, Daddy, is what they say. Come over here and catch me when I jump. And you move closer to them, preparing to do just that. So they do, and you do. All things considered, it's, it's a rather remarkable arrangement. But what happens? I mean, what happens if someday they jump and you can't catch them because your arms aren't long enough, strong enough, quick enough, or near enough? And the reality is I, I couldn't catch Bill either. But then again, he didn't tell me he was going to jump or wait for me to get my arms in position. When I thought about that on my deck at sunset, I cried. And then I looked down at the book I was reading, and saw that the biblical verse that had triggered that line of thinking in the first place came from Deuteronomy. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And I realized that even though I missed Bill in that I failed to catch him, and continue to miss Bill in that I no longer have him, my arms are not the only arms. My arms are not the final arms, which means that where Bill fell... It's not where he lays. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with, with folk. Yeah, That's something that I find easy to do. It's like a can opener to the heart each time you do this. <laughs> but um, uh, I'm a stronger person now than I was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. appreciate it and thank you so much for being on our show Dr. William Ritter and good luck you're going to be a new granddaddy that's right very soon and when February February, February wow good luck Bill and good luck with that and thanks again for being on the show thank you you have been listening to Open to Hope Radio you can sign up for our newsletter Facebook and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com 